Turning today to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15 and verse 3. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And we should be thinking about Christ's substitutionary atoning work on the cross of Calvary. Well, we've come to this passage. We've been looking at chapter 14, and we've been looking particularly at the revelatory and the sign gifts, all the gifts, in fact, but we homed particularly on those, the revelatory and the sign gifts that were given in the foundation stage of the church, according to Ephesians 2, through the apostles and prophets of the New Testament. Apostles and prophets were given while the scripture was being completed, and they were given inspired words. And during that period, once the scripture was complete, fully disclosed to us, then the prophets and the prophet and the apostles were withdrawn. That was the foundation stage. And we've been looking at a number of things in connection with that. I just thought I'd refresh your mind about one set of facts very briefly, and then we move on to chapter 15. There are so many aspects of uh, the sign and revelatory gifts that people attempt to practice them today. Since uh, the beginning of the 1900s, there have been sincere Christians who have felt that apostles and prophets and tongue-speaking and the performing of miracles by Christians was for today. And after 1900 years of church history, suddenly they seek to reintroduce them to the church. But they haven't got the real thing. Many of those people, the Pentecostal movement, the charismatic movement, many of them may be saved and may be sincere, but when it comes to the revelatory and sign gifts, they make a great mistake. And that's a shame. But these gifts are not given today. I just remind you then of a few factors concerning tongues that are simply not complied with today. Quickly, number one, the tongues of the Bible were real languages. Today they are never real languages, so far as we know. They are ecstatic languages. They are artificially produced sounds. They are not real languages. That was the first thing, and that is incontrovertible, unavoidable. What happened in New Testament times is certainly not seen today. Secondly, this 1 Corinthians 14 shows us that the person gifted with a tongue understood what he was saying if it was a real revelation from God. He was given the gift of the language, which he'd never learned, and he understood its sense and its meaning. And if he didn't understand its sense and its meaning, though he may still be uttering the language, he was to remain silent. 
So it was a real tongue. The speaker understood the meaning or remained silent. And even so, there must be an interpreter, a second person, another person who must corroborate the meaning of the tongue so that everyone would know it was a proven and true miracle. This was a message from God, authenticated in the mouth of a witness who was given a gift of interpretation. And then only two or three tongue speakers at the very most were ever to bring a message in a service of God's people. That's a rule very clearly laid down. All these things are ignored today. All these things are passed over entirely. And then the people who speak in tongues are the platform party. They're among the leaders of the church. For corroboration, they can turn to the one, according to the Apostle Paul, that sitteth by. 1 Corinthians 14 is addressed to the leaders or the platform party of the church. There aren't many of them, even in the days when there were prophets. There were only two or three in Antioch, we read in the book of Acts. They were carefully and sparsely given this gift. And then their utterances were never for themselves, but always for the whole assembly. There is no such thing as private tongues, just for me, the speaker in a tongue, just for my benefit, just for my uplifting, and so on. Always the rule of 1 Corinthians 14, it's a message for all that must be authenticated and spoken out in the assembly, in the foundation stage of the church, while the scriptures were still incomplete. And then it must so be done, and there were two powerful verses about this in 1 Corinthians 14, that there is order and harmony. That must be the absolute rule. And everything that is done must be done in accordance with Christ's command given through the Apostle Paul. All those ten rules are abandoned, ignored, departed from today. And our greatest concern as Christian people is always to reform ourselves according to the pattern of Scripture and to follow the Lord's will and to seek that. So I thought I would, with just those few factors, remind you of what we've been considering before we go to this third verse. I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. The Apostle Paul is going to be talking about the resurrection. But before he does, he summarizes the gospel, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So we'll pause there. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. A gentleman wrote to me recently who'd been listening to one of the television broadcasts on Saturday and he wanted to know why we made so much of the atonement. He wrote thinking, 
Atonement is not something which is stressed in the New Testament. Well, here it is. And in many other texts which we shall look at. I shall be carrying out a kind of study of texts this morning. A different sort of shape and type of message. But look at the first here in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3. I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. Notice the Apostle Paul was not the author of this. He did not think of it. He did not uh, formulate this teaching that Christ came and suffered and died a substitutionary death for sinners on Calvary's cross. I delivered unto you, he says. I passed it down to you. That's all I did. I did not embellish it. I did not form it. I passed on to you something that I received. How did he receive it? Well, he received it by revelation. He also authenticated it by comparison with what the other apostles were teaching. And, of course, he derived it from the Old Testament scriptures that taught it long before. I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. And here it is, how that Christ died for our sins. There could be no clearer statement of the substitutionary death of Christ. He died to bear the punishment due for our sins. He died in our place as our substitute. Christ died for our sins. Now look at what comes next. According to the scriptures. In other words, in all the Old Testament prophecy, and there's much of it concerning the coming of Christ, and I've been saying in meetings just recently, Christ is the only person in the whole of human history who has ever been prophesied personally. Not vaguely, one day someone will come who will be great and do significant things and he'll come from such and such a place. No, very specifically, who he would be, what his character would be, when he would come, how he would come, what he would do, what he would accomplish, step by step in great detail. There is so much detail about the coming of Christ. And sometimes, how I wish we could persuade people to stop and think, do you know this? One person in the history of the world who has been prophesied at all, let alone in detail, in great detail. But listen to what the Apostle says particularly, how that Christ died a substitutionary death, he says in effect, for our sins according to the scriptures. Well, where does the scripture say that? He refers to the Old Testament scriptures, of course. And if you've got a good reference Bible, it'll take you back to the Old Testament. If you've got the standard references concocted uh, for the uh, uh, Bible, you'll probably find it only refers you to New Testament texts. Well, that's useful, but 
Paul has in mind the scriptures of old, according to the scriptures. Well, there are a number of them that are very explicit. We could go, for example, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, but I won't do that this morning, where the seed of the woman, a great descendant who would one day come, would deal with the serpent and the seed of the serpent, and he would bruise or crush the serpent's head. So he would defeat sin, but he would pay a price because his own heel would be bruised, which is clearly a metaphor. He would suffer, not fatally, but long-term fatally, but he would suffer and be bruised and crushed in the process. And that was the first light on a substitutionary death, one who would take a punishment on behalf of those who sinned to secure their salvation. But I want to turn to uh, what is probably uppermost in Paul's mind would be Psalm 22. And we look very briefly at that. And if you have it before you, it'll certainly help according to the scriptures, just very hurriedly in Psalm 22. Verse 1, the Lord Jesus Christ quotes this on Calvary's cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Which some people very foolishly have said, if... uh, when Christ uttered these words on Calvary's cross, he was indicating that his mission to the world had failed and that he felt all had gone wrong and his execution was an end of his work. And he cries out to his father, why have I been forsaken? That is nonsense, of course. You must take the prophecy as a whole, as we will, when Christ use these very words, they're predictive of him. He indicated that though he was God as well as man, in his human nature, he must feel totally forsaken by his father as part of the punishment that he bore on Calvary. What is the punishment of sin for us? It is to be discarded by God to be rejected by him everlastingly, to be separated from his kindness and his love and to go to eternal punishment away from him. And in order to be a substitute for us, Christ must experience what was for him the worst thing of all in his holy divine being, to be separated from the Father. He must somehow, in a way we cannot understand, he was God-man, he must turn away from his divinity for a moment and not feel its benefits and not see the, the wider picture of the outcome of his work on Calvary so that his human nature would be exposed to the forsakenness which we deserve to feel.
and he bore it away for us, along with the penalty and the punishment and the pain and the torment, he must bear the forsakenness. It's part of his substitutionary atoning death. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then verse 2, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season am not silent. Is that not a glimpse of Calvary? Three hours the Lord hung and suffered in daylight, and three hours all light was eclipsed, and the crowd silenced, and he suffered in darkness to show that there were depths to his suffering that we cannot see and witness and understand. And then I could read other verses, verse 6. I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. The prediction that the Holy Son of God, all-powerful, through whom the worlds were made, would suffer the utmost humiliation on behalf of all those for whom he was dying. I am a worm and no man. All they that see me laughed me to scorn. Exactly what happened at Calvary. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him seeing he delighted in him. All of it predicts what he went through on Calvary's cross. And verse 12, his physical agonies, let alone the agonies of soul. Many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me around. We could go on reading to verse 15, verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Verse 16, it's delicate, but it reads, for dogs have compassed me. What does that mean? Lawless ones, like wild dogs. That surely describes the Roman occupation. The Jews at the time of the crucifixion of Christ were an occupied country. They could not give the death sentence. They depended upon Pilate, the Roman governor, to pronounce the death sentence. And he and his troops must take Christ on behalf of the Jews and crucify him on a cross. Rome, they were the lawless ones. They rampaged round the world, seizing like wild dogs whatever they wanted. So while it's delicate, the word dogs, it refers to the wild dogs of the times. The lawless ones, the Romans, would be the ones who would be the means of his execution. In verse 16, and the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet, point after point. 
that was either through metaphor or literally fulfilled on Calvary's cross. Verse 18, they parted my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Verse 20, deliver my soul from the sword. Our King James Version translates, my darling. And it translates the Hebrew, my only one. And he came as the only son of the living God into this world. Point after point in Psalm 22. And we could go on. They pierced his hands and feet. And then uh, there were the consequences of his suffering and death. All the people who would praise him in Psalm 22. I could go to the book of Daniel, many other places where there are, and of course, Isaiah 53, the most explicit references to features of the substitutionary atoning death of Christ. So the Apostle Paul says how that Christ died for our sin according to the Scriptures. The substitutionary atoning death of Christ was clearly laid out through the prophecies of old. But now I turn to New Testament texts and we have time to look at just a few. And I go first of all to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1 and verse 21. It's concerning Mary, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, which means Saviour, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now don't you see that is a clear statement of the substitutionary death of Christ. Christ is going to be born. He's going to assume a human body, a human nature, not a fallen nature. He will be pure and spotless and sinless. He has to be because he is divine as well as human. But he's going to assume human nature. Why? To save the people from their sin. Well, just think about this for a moment. Why does he have to come? Why does he have to be born? Why does he have to have a true human nature as well as a divine nature? To save the people from their sin. Don't you see that's a statement of substitutionary death? Because if it were anything else, he wouldn't need to come. Supposing it was possible for Christ to save us by a word. Save all the lost. Transform them. Make them our children. Give them a new nature. Expunge, cancel, get rid of their sin. I pronounce the word. If that were possible, he could do that in heaven. 
he would not need to come. Why come and assume human flesh and personhood in order to save for sin? There is only one, one possible reason. Because he must die a substitutionary death. He must take our place, suffer our punishment, offer up perfect righteousness as a man to deserve heaven for us all. It is actually, when you examine it, essentially a statement of the atoning death of Christ. Otherwise he would have no need to come. And she shall bring forth a son and his name, Saviour, Jesus, for he shall save his people, rescue them from their sin. I wish I could stay with just this theme alone. Save from sin. Imagine you're in a vessel at sea and there's a mighty storm and the vessel is filling with water and you're going to perish and die and drown. Save, rescue is the word. Taken out of your situation. Taken out of your danger so wholly and thoroughly they can never get you in the future. To save, he's got to come into our situation and deliver us from it. So many ways you could apply this. You're under sentence of death. He's going to deliver you from that and take your place. This is a rescue, a salvation. You can contribute nothing to it. He must die to pay the price for you and to take away your sin. I go to Matthew chapter 20, and uh, here in verse 28, and here it is again, and then we shall go to the epistles very quickly. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. That's another aspect of Calvary. A ransom price. You're like a slave. Terrible thing, slavery. A slave in ancient times. Owned by others. Giving your entire life to their service. Own nothing of your own. Receive no formal pay. Do exactly what is required of you. And slavery could be cruel and imposing such a lot on people. And slaves very often died young because of the burden put upon them. And you're a slave. Now you're going to the slave market. And someone buys you out of slavery. And they pay a ransom price to buy your freedom. What's the price? Well, it must be a price which compensates somebody for the loss of labor. You're a slave. You represent maybe 40 years of labor. Uncomplaining, 
unremitting labor. That's expensive. You're a valuable entity when it comes to that slave market. And if the right price isn't offered, you offer a paltry sum, you won't get the slave and buy that slave's freedom. The price you pay has got to be, in the estimation of the seller, worth the loss of the labor. So Christ gave his life a ransom price to purchase from the slavery of sin. What's the slavery of sin? Enslavement to condemnation, to eternal wrath, to the force and power of sin in our lives throughout life's journey. He has to pay a price equivalent to all that. That's the meaning of ransom price. It is a way of expressing substitutionary atonement to purchase our freedom. Even as the Son of Man came not to minister unto, but to minister and to give his life. Substitutionary atonement, a ransom for many. Then I go to the letter to the Romans. Time is almost out. I must rush. Chapter 3 and verse 25. Whom God hath sent forth, set forth, to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. That's a statement of the substitutionary atoning death of Christ. God has set forth Christ as a propitiation. What a marvelous word. A propitiation is a vehicle of favor, a mechanism or a means of bringing about favor. People often confuse this propitiation with expiation. Expiation, propitiation. Very often they're regarded as synonyms, the same thing. They're not. They're actually almost opposites. Expiation begins with X. That's Latin for out of. Out of. Expiation is the act which takes away your guilt. And expiation is an act of Christ by which in suffering in your place he takes away from you the burden of guilt and pays the price and the punishment on your behalf. Propitiation is different. Pro is the Latin word prefix meaning for. So ex means out of, for means Pro means for. Propitiation is the result of expiation. Expiation takes away your sin. It's the act that does it. Propitiation is the giving of righteousness. That's salvation. Sin is suffered for and removed so that God's favor can flow upon you and he can give you 
the gift of life and salvation. And here our translators have used the word propitiation. I go to Romans 5 and there's three wonderful verses here that give an insight into these things. Verse 9, much more then being now justified that is made righteous by his blood. He didn't make us righteous by a declaration in heaven. He made us righteous by coming and shedding his blood and thereby paying the penalty and the price of sin so that it could be washed away. Being now justified, made righteous in the sight of God by his blood and suffering, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Saved from wrath through him. Through his suffering, he bore the wrath of God. What's the wrath of God? The wrath of God is his righteous indignation against our sin. Oh, our need is so great. Our self-love, our selfishness, our lies, every lie ever uttered our hatred of others, our greed. There are so many things. And God's holy indignation is against all our rebellion and all our unbelief and all our constant sinful ways. His righteous indignation is against us because of his purity and his wonderful holiness, and his perfection. Oh, but here is his love, his unsurpassed love. Christ has come and suffered God's righteous indignation for us. The substitutionary atoning death of Christ. For if when we were enemies, verse 10, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, reconciled by his death. He suffered our death in order that we could be reconciled. This word reconciled is a wonderful word. Uh, the Greek translated reconciled literally means exchange. Well, how does that work? For if when we were enemies we were exchanged to God, reconciled is perfect. It indicates mutual change. Because Christ died a substitutionary death by the death of his son, there can be mutual change on God's side, on our side. God changes his attitude towards us. Instead of indignation, there flows towards us love and acceptance. Instead of withholding himself from us, he pours out blessing and new life and becomes our guide and our God and our Lord and our friend. 
So God changes his attitude. And our attitude is changed by the power of God. Instead of unbelief, we believe in him with all our hearts. Instead of hostility, we obey him and desire him and look for him. There are so many changes take place in us and in the attitude of God. So there is mutual change. You can see it when two countries at war make peace. When peace is made, both sides change as hostility changes to peace and acceptance and trade and recognition. So it is with God and man. That's what reconciliation means. Think exchange. It's a tremendous word. And here it is in this 10th verse. If when we were enemies, we were subject to mutual change, God changed towards us, we changed towards him. And so we were made one. All accomplished by the substitutionary death of Christ, taking our punishment, giving his perfect righteousness to deserve heaven for us. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And verse 11, and not only we, but we also, not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. And uh, this is a, all the modern translations, all other translations say something like, we have now received the reconciliation. And that's right. It's almost the same word as is used in the previous verse. But our translators have chosen the word atonement, which means much the same thing. At one moment. It's the same as reconciliation. We are now one. Each party has changed their attitude. And so our time is up, dear friends. I wanted to take you further, if possible, but I've spent too long on these verses, to Galatians, to the letter to the Hebrews, to First Peter, all that explore magnificent aspects of the atoning death of Christ, a ransom price paid for us on Calvary's cross, how much we owe to Christ. He saves us, rescue. He makes us righteous. He opens up the favor of God towards us. He delivers us from wrath. He purges us, says the letter to the Hebrews, by his substitutionary death. So many aspects accomplished by Christ on Calvary's cross, we owe everything to him.